thank you for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Anne Raza. Today, I'm happy to welcome physician, activist, and former presidential candidate for the Green Party USA, Jill Stein. I've already had a fundamental and contextual discussion with Jill Stein on the war in Ukraine, so in case you missed that, be sure to click in the link in the description. In this part, we will be focusing solely on recent developments. Jill Stein, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you as always, Zane. Let us begin with the Pentagon leaks. This week, the FBI arrested a 21-year-old Air Force Guardsman who was responsible for one of the most significant U.S. government leaks in recent history. The leaks were reported in the German mainstream media, but the facts that were quite critical of the prevailing narrative around Ukraine were not highlighted sufficiently. Notable leaks included the U.S. government's understanding that Ukraine has little chance of defeating Russia and that the fighting in Donbass region is heading into a stalemate. In addition, the documents reveal NATO's direct involvement in the war that includes how U.S. intelligence agencies have deeply penetrated the Russian military, obtaining vital information of Russian operational plans. It also exposes how 97 special forces from NATO countries, including from the U.S., are active inside Ukraine. Another document reveals how the U.S. has been spying on President Zelensky, fearing Ukraine might start striking Russia's territory if Washington provides it with long-range missiles. Can you talk about the significance of these leaks? Uh, they are huge. You know, the leaks really confirm that uh, our governments are lying, meaning the governments of the West, they are lying about the war. This is like the Afghanistan papers or the Pentagon papers from the Vietnam War. We're learning that our governments are not being uh, uh, truthful to us and they are actively, uh, you know, conducting information warfare on we the people in whose name and with our tax dollars uh, these wars are being conducted. So that's one thing. Our governments are lying, which again underscores that we cannot trust what they say or how they report. It really throws everything else into, uh, shall we say, uh, relief in which uh, all of it must be questioned. Um, so governments are lying uh, and Ukraine is losing. I mean, it's not only that uh, uh, Russia is certainly having a hard time. That is very true. But uh, Ukraine is running out of weapons. Um, according to the leaks, Ukraine is running out of air defenses. And its air defense system is Russian. Uh, about 90% of its air um, uh, armaments, that is, missiles to defend off, uh, fend off incoming uh, uh, aircraft, are uh, are Russian, so we cannot supply those munitions. Um, and if you look at firepower, Ukraine is unbelievably outgunned. It has about one uh, armed aircraft for every five uh, that Russia has. So the terms are not good. And the leaks clarify that Russia is pounding Ukraine. The losses are devastating on both sides, but Ukraine is less equipped to withstand those losses, both by way of its population being, I think, like one quarter of Russia's. So, you know, this is a devastating and horrific war. And uh, both countries are having to really ratchet down in order to uh, uh, procure the bodies to go out there and be forced into the meat grinder. So, you know, this is a humanitarian catastrophe uh, on both sides. Um, 
And it's predicted that, uh, you know, that Russia is going to continue to grind down Ukraine. It's awful on both sides, but Ukraine is losing and will continue to lose. The leaks are also clear that this much hyped spring offensive um, is not expected to change things. And in fact, it's even questioned whether this spring offensive is going to take place at all. So these leaks are very significant. As you mentioned, the leaks also confirm that the U.S. is spying on everybody from Ukraine to our allies and is also deeply embedded in uh, Russia's intelligence, it appears, and military. Um, that's nothing new exactly. It's been known for a long time. You know, when uh, I think it was Obama who was exposed for spying on Angela Merkel's um, cell phone. And, you know, this has been kind of a constant. The U.S. is very good at spying. Um, but it's, you know, it's especially these revelations about the terms of the war. Uh, also, what was exposed was that Ukraine is violating the terms of our agreement, that weapons, the more powerful weapons, were being supplied with the understanding that they would not be used to enter sovereign territory of other countries. But in fact, Ukraine has sent drones not only into Crimea, but also uh, like 300 miles deep into Russia in order to uh, basically bombard a Russian airfield, I believe it was. So this just makes the stakes of the war so much more perilous. Um, the fact also that, that U.S. and NATO has some 97 troops there on the ground, it's been known for at least a month or two that the U.S. is directly uh, targeting. And in fact, uh, Ukraine apparently cannot send missiles uh, into uh, uh really anywhere into the Donbass, the eastern provinces, they cannot send their so-called defensive missiles without U.S. intelligence to target them, which is extremely incriminating. And in fact, you may have heard that one of the terms China has outlined for becoming involved in assisting Russia is evidence that the U.S. and the NATO are directly involved in incursions into Russian territory, that that would be a red line for China. So we are very much, and Ukraine is, we ourselves, because of our involvement, our troops on the ground, their engagement in everything, including specific targeting with armaments that we have supplied, this is meeting China's red line to um, become involved and to start uh, sending weapons to Russia. So we could see the terms of this change very quickly. And in many ways, this is like pre-World War I, before the assassination of, of, the, of the Duke that triggered everybody becoming involved in what was really a local conflict. Suddenly it was a global um, conflagration. And we are at the brink of that. The difference this time being that it will be nuclear. And the closer we get, the more escalation that occurs, the more perilous it is that um, nuclear weapons will begin to be used. And the nuclear weapons that are I think deceptively called tactical. What are they? You know, these are weapons that are the size of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs and even larger. They may be smaller, but they also may be much larger. So just because they're being called tactical 
doesn't mean they're any less dangerous. And that really provides for a very slippery slope. Once you've entered the nuclear realm at all, then the escalation begins up the nuclear ladder. And that could happen very quickly. Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO himself, uh, said as much in December of last year when he said that this war has a very real possibility of engaging NATO and the U.S., therefore, against Russia, and that terrible things may happen if that is the case. So it's really important for us to be clear-eyed about what exactly we are engaging in here and to basically shut it down. There is no solution other than a an immediate ceasefire and the beginning of negotiations. And those who've argued from the part of NATO and the West that, oh, we can't do it right now because uh, Ukraine is not in a dominant position and would wind up having to um, uh, allow territory, uh, Russia to maintain its territory in the Donbass and so on, as well as Crimea. Those who argue we can't do it now, wait, you know, that's not only ethically and morally wrong and historically wrong, it's just wrong on pragmatic terms as well, because it's likely that Ukraine is going to continue losing territory and maybe on the verge of losing a whole lot more. There seems to be a discrepancy of what Western politicians and media are telling the public and what they actually know behind the scenes, according to the Pentagon leaks. We continuously hear that Ukraine is capable of winning this war and recapture all of its territory, including Crimea, and therefore, all of these weapon shipments, advanced weapons, battle tanks, and now fighter jets from Poland are being justified upon this premise. Why do you think there's such a discrepancy between what the government actually knows and wh what it is communicating to the public? Well, welcome to, you know, to the greatest empire the world has ever known. Um, and, you know, this empire really emerged out of the Second World War when enormous resources were available to the U.S. and the competitors had pretty much disappeared. The developing world was not yet sufficiently developed by any means. And the U.S., at, at the time that uh, the Soviet Union broke up uh, in 1989, approximately, shortly thereafter, uh, the U.S. military issued its formal policy. And at that time, uh, it was uh, published in the New York Times, or at least excerpts of it were, in 1992, declaring essentially what has now become known as full-spectrum dominance, which is the formal uh, official military policy of the United States. And when it says full-spectrum, that means geographically, it means, you know, across the globe, it means in all, it, it's militarily in all battle spaces, uh, whether it's land, sea, uh, under uh, under the sea, uh, in outer space, that we will dominate all potential battle spaces. We will have full spectrum dominance, and we will have full spectrum dominance politically, uh, geoeconomically, uh, geopolitically. That we will not allow competitors even to emerge at the regional level. We made this explicit starting in 1992, and that policy has basically been reiterated with each major um, uh, position statement of the Pentagon. Um, again, in uh, uh, the year 2000, where it issued the Vision 2020 statement, which basically said the same thing. And again, in 2017, when it uh, issued its uh, 
something at risk um, uh, or at our, I believe it's called at our own peril. And the point there was that great powers are emerging. We must not allow them to emerge. We're in a new era of great power contests. And, you know, indeed, uh, this is taking place. U.S. hegemony uh, is on the way out very much, you know, at its own making because the, you know, people are waking up right now to the fact that the emperor has no clothes in this vast global empire. The emperor has no clothes as far as the rest of the world is concerned. Now, Europe hasn't woken up to this yet. I think just by virtue of habit, there's a very close relationship. Uh, and the U.S. is insisting on meeting the military and defense needs for Europe, kind of keeping Europe um, in a uh, forever, you know, uh, childhood dependency on the U.S. if the U.S. had its way and trying to ensure that uh, Europe cannot um, procure its critical resources like fossil fuels from other places, which is why I think we can be pretty sure the U.S. destroyed um, the uh, Nord Stream pipeline. So the U.S. has an enormous conflict of interest in um, keeping the rest of the world down. You know, we're in a very advantageous position right now, comparing, you know, basically commanding resources and being able to give marching orders to the rest of the world. Of course, U.S. capitalists would like to keep it that way, but that's not to the benefit of the rest of the world. The rest of the world is waking up. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the Rubicon has been crossed, and I think there's no going back. Um, the uh, the alliance of China and Russia, we have really forced that alliance thanks to our, our global hostile domination. We have forced our worst uh, competitors together to be even stronger. And they now have the BRICS alliance. Uh, I believe it's the Shanghai alliance. There are various other alliances of everybody else. They have the numbers uh, they have the vast population. Recent data suggests they also have um, the majority of the world's uh, GDP now, uh, if it's measured in uh, local purchasing parity, something to that effect. But our economic domination has also faded. And hostility does not breed uh, cooperation. We need to be a part of a cooperative global future. And the fact that our media here, that uh, mainstream media is very much in bed with the military industrial complex, goes a long way to explain why the media is doing all it can in order to keep uh, the people, certainly in the United States and around the world, in the dark about what's actually happening and the incredible role that we can all play in supporting this uh, shall we say, global evolution to a greater state of democracy, peace and justice. In February, world-renowned investigative Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch released an article based on an anonymous source or multiple anonymous sources, we don't know that yet, that detailed how the US bombed the Nord Stream pipeline. A few weeks later, the New York Times released an article based on an anonymous US intelligence sources that claimed a raw group used a yacht from Rockstock to bomb the Nord Stream pipeline. They even found traces of explosive material as well as fake IDs on the yacht and ruled out any involvement of British or American citizens. Following the New York Times article, German media led by the side, the Spiegel, conducted their own investigations. They came to the same conclusion that the perpetrators may be a rogue pro-Ukrainian group 
that is not affiliated with the Ukrainian government or some Russian anti-Putin group. There is even talk about this by senior officials in Germany that it may possibly be a false flag operation that is intended to blame Ukraine with the intentional damage its relations with the West. How do you evaluate the story of Seymour Hirsch versus the story of the mainstream media? Which one do you find to be credible? Well, let's start with the uh, mainstream media story because it doesn't pass the laugh test on on many counts. In fact, it's actually really surprising that such a far-fetched and ludicrous proposal made it past whoever you know is is supposed to be. Um, you know, uh, conducting their information warfare. I mean, because it's just not credible at all. The idea that a 50-foot sailboat could go out with a dive crew of five or six and that they, they could conduct this extremely dangerous um, uh, deep diving operation that would require enormous technical expertise and support. It's very, you know, it's just not credible that anyone other than the world's most trained military divers uh, would be able to do that. And, you know, that's what Seymour Hersh is talking about. But also the idea that you could do this from a sailboat. Sorry, I don't know if you've ever been on a sailboat, but you can't really launch divers from a sailboat, especially divers that are going to be carrying hundreds of pounds of unbelievably dangerous uh, explosives. Uh, this C4, that can't be launched from a sailboat. You have to have really an extensive diving platform that cannot be done from a sailboat where usually, you know, there's no platform at all. You, you either have to climb down or jump in and, you know, so that's just not going to happen. And sailboats would have a really hard time anchoring at that depth of 300 of uh, 260 feet. Um, you would need almost a half a mile of uh, anchor line, you know, coiled up in this 50 foot sailboat, which is going to be really heavy and take up a huge amount of space. And then you'd also have to bring loads of extra diving tanks because of the time that it takes to um, uh, to adjust to the changes in pressure, uh, which would likely be many hours. So you'd have this sailboat that's sailing around, you know, how are the divers even going to find it? And it's just, it's it's crazy. It's laughable. Um, so on those counts alone, it's just not, uh, it's not a believable story. And it's no surprise that the media is now trying to back off of that story. Western media is trying to say, oh, maybe that story, this is the latest I heard, that the um, the hypothesis that that, that story is just a decoy and or that that boat was just a decoy because they've sort of, I think, been shamed into realizing that this is an absolutely ludicrous uh, proposition. Seymour Hersh's um, uh, explanation that this was, um, you know, essentially a, um, a, a boat, I think, whether it was Norwegian, I believe it was a Norwegian, very large boat that had been outfitted with a, a, whatever it's called, a barometric chamber or something that would allow divers to come up and then repressurize, um, and that would have adequate room and support for all the high-tech stuff, and that this was done during NATO exercises so that it wouldn't raise suspicions with this boat being uh, off of uh, Bornholm Island uh, in the area that needed the um, 
to which they were going to attach the uh, explosives. So, you know, that story, uh, Seymour Hersh's story, which was um, given to him by a source or sources who were directly involved and knowledgeable, kind of explains everything at a level of great detail. One of the other real red flags here that the West is lying is the fact that they refuse to acknowledge or investigate this story and that the vote was clearly manipulated in the United Nations where Russia had proposed that there be a an independent investigation, truly independent. And the vote was, I think it was Russia and China and Brazil, I believe, that supported it. Uh, this was on the Security Council, and I believe 12 nations abstained. Abstained. Now, why would you abstain from an investigation? And the official line was, oh, well, Germany and um, Sweden and I think the Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken, that there were three ongoing investigations, but they're secret. They're secret. Even the people in their own countries can't know what's going on in those investigations. So, you know, I'm sorry, but this is very funny and it's ludicrous and um, shameful. And again, it exemplifies why, you know, the fact that our government is lying to us, as we saw clearly in the um, uh, in the gamer leaks. Let us move to another development. German recently approved a Polish request to send Ukraine five MiG-29 jets. The approval from Berlin comes just hours upon receiving the application. Ukraine also received its first Patriot defense, defense system, also delivered by Germany. The Patriot system is used to combat enemy aircraft, ballistic missiles and cruise missiles and is considered one of the most advanced defensive systems. This comes on top of the German Leopard 2 and Amer American Abraham battle tanks that were approved earlier this year. The Ukraine counteroffensive is now expected to begin any day. Do you think all of these weapons will end the war in favor of Ukraine and lead to long-lasting peace? Uh, of course not. Um, weapons create more war. They don't create peace. And we saw from the leaks uh, really confirming what any unbiased expert has been saying, uh, you know, all across the globe, that this war is in a, this is like World War One, but with nuclear weapons, you know, people are very dug in and uh, with more destructive weapons that have the potential to accelerate to nuclear. So, you know, I think uh, Ukraine may have these weapons. Ukraine is also out of people. Um, there may be some trained troops coming in, but they're relatively few. Russia is said to have, you know, 100,000 or maybe 300,000, but a lot of trained troops who've been training for like six months. When Ukraine troops get training, they get, you know, like six weeks or seven weeks, and they don't have experience either in battle or, or with the equipment. Um, so the equipment may prolong the war, uh, but it's you know, it's all, it's virtually impossible that it's going to change the outcome of the war, which is why, you know, there is one, there's one other outcome other than stalemate, which is escalation towards nuclear war. And that really should be front and center and in everyone's mind. And it is just staggering, I think, how our elected leaders are purposefully 
in denial. They're like living in some fantasy world as though nuclear weapons don't exist or as though nuclear war is survivable. There are many of them that think that. And that's certainly, um, you know, I think it was New York City that recently put out some uh, public service promotion about what to do in case of a nuclear attack. You know, stay indoors, you know, don't go out and don't expect anybody to come for a little while because all your all your uh, healthcare uh, infrastructure may be destroyed and all your healthcare providers may be killed, you know? And it was like, it was so preposterous. It's like duck and cover from the 1960s uh, and, and 50s. So it's really important, you know, what everyone needs to know is that nuclear weapons right now are far more powerful than they were in the days of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which were horrible enough. But now we have nuclear weapons up to 1,000 times the strength. And the way that nuclear targeting is done now, it's believed that major cities are targeted uh, with about 1,000 times the strength, um, not in just one bomb, but in several bombs that are each more powerful, maybe 20 to 50 times more powerful than, than the Hiroshima bombs. If just one city is targeted, let's just say one, which would never be the case, there would always be, you know, a response. So there would be at least two, but let's just, pre and then there'd be no holds barred from there. It'd probably be them all. And we have the capacity to do that. Just one, if just one city were targeted with basically a thousand times the power of Hiroshima, uh, you would lose about 127 million people like that. But then you would go into nuclear winter where we would lose one out of every four people uh, living on the planet. Basically two billion people would die in nuclear winter churned up by the firepower uh, with which one city is likely to be targeted. This is not survivable. This is just not survivable. Nuclear winter lasts for probably decades, we think, because so much debris is uh, kicked up into the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, uh, or above the stratosphere, where weather cannot bring the debris down. So it's like, you know, what uh, led to the death of dinosaurs and a global extinction, uh, that would begin to happen. I mean, we're already in that, you know, sixth grade extinction right now. All we need is massive famine, which is what nuclear war would trigger. So there is no recovery, even from a small nuclear war. So it's really important for everybody to know that nuclear war is not over there. If we slide down the slippery slope towards the new use of nuclear weapons, Every one of us is in the crosshairs of that uh, nuclear winter, no matter where you are. Everybody needs to recognize that we all have skin in this game. We all need to stand up right now, as we have done many times before, because when we do it together, um, there will be no stopping us. And you know, we can ensure that this war gets shut down with a um, uh, with a with a ceasefire, a truce and the beginnings of negotiation towards an agreement. We were there, remember that. The parties were all in agreement shortly after the war began in March, where both Russia and Ukraine were making significant concessions uh, sufficient to satisfy them both. And that was disrupted. That peace accord was disrupted by guess who? You know, the U.S. Uh, together with the U.K. said no doing. More recently, when um, 
uh, Zelensky uh, indicated that he was very interested in talking with Xi Jinping about his peace proposal. What did the U.S. do? They came out and said, no, 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 no way. We expect you, we respect Ukraine's sovereignty, except when Ukraine wants peace. Then we don't respect Ukraine's sovereignty. So enough bullshit. Let's just stop putting ourselves at the nuclear brink right now. We all have skin in this game. This game is solvable. It's winnable with a win-win for us all uh, if we make it happen. One of the arguments made in the Western media when it comes to the nuclear threat that this war poses is that Russia will never ever use nuclear weapons because it will be the first to have nuclear winter and fallout. Secondly, it is also argued that the nuclear threat that this war poses was also invoked when the West was sending defensive weapons, then the West began sending smaller offensive weapons and now it is sending larger and more advanced offensive weapons and in none of these stages Russia used a nuclear tactical weapon and that there's much more room to send more weapons. How do you respond to these two arguments? <laughs> well, uh, nuclear winter is global. Um, so it's, it's when the debris goes up into the atmosphere and it's propelled up with a force of about 600 miles per hour, there's like literally an upward um, tornado. Um, and that's sort of how I've seen it described by nuclear scientists. So it goes up with incredible force. And once it's up there, it just diffuses. So, you know, and it's not concentrated long enough to cause nuclear winter. Um, you know, nuclear winter has to happen over a period of at least weeks, you know, but it's not like it's in some box overhead. You know, it, it just diffuses like smoke. You know, when smoke comes out of your chimney, does it hover over your house? No, it begins to diffuse immediately. So that's just ridiculous. And it's, it's just uh, shocking that anyone in a position of so much power and influence is incredibly cavalier. And I think it just, uh, it's a reflection of how degraded our media and our press has become that, um, that they would put all of us, including themselves, uh, really uh, at the nuclear brink and then just give us a little shove. You know, it's just uh, unbelievable. Another argument against the promisely, most notably voiced by the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and let me quote him here, quote, wanting peace does not mean submitting to a bigger neighbor. If Ukraine stops defending itself, it will not mean peace, but the end of Ukraine, unquote. How would you respond to this line of thought? So there are a couple points. One is that this is why you need a peace agreement. Um, this is why you need a treaty. This is why the United States needs to be involved as a guarantor, uh, as well as the EU. Um, it's like the conditions of of the uh, Minsk Accords, except with more security added in because the United States was not a party to the Minsk Accords and in fact was not supportive and didn't encourage Ukraine to participate and all that. And the European nations were uh, attempting to undermine um, uh, the Minsk Accords. So we need to start with an actual treaty to ensure the security of all players and even go beyond that, you know, to creating an alternative non-militarized security architecture for Europe. That's what the EU was supposed to be. It was supposed to end those hundreds of years of war, you know, particularly between um, uh, France and Germany, uh, 
uh, and provide a non-militarized means of uh, of um, economic and and political interaction. So we need that. We need that now, and it should include Russia uh, as well. So um, that's one part. Number two is that this uh, boogeyman of of a uh, the latest Hitler. I mean, that's been invoked every time NATO and the U.S. arms industry wanted a war. It was always because someone's been been characterized as the latest Hitler. And the Soviet Union is not the same as Russia. Russia has been involved in some border skirmishes, but it is not a Soviet Union and it cannot afford to be a Soviet Union. It can hardly pay the pensions that it already uh, has responsibility for. Um, during the Vietnam War, uh, this was the rationale for fighting the Vietnamese communists because they were going to ally with China. Well, in fact, what did they do? They went, the communists of China and Vietnam went to war with each other uh, when the U.S. war in Vietnam ended. So we invoke these um, rationalizations for the benefit of the weapons industry to remain on high drive forever. We concoct one more after another and we should stop, you know, we just have to stop it because we're now all in the target hairs of these wars. We cannot afford for the weapons industry to be calling the shots uh, in our foreign policy anymore. Another argument is that is made is it is too late to negotiate as Russia has caused so much debt and suffering on civilians and committed unspeakable war crimes such as attacking residential complexes as well as civilian energy infrastructure. It is politically impossible for Ukraine President Zelensky to pursue negotiations and some may even argue the same for Putin given how much price Russia has paid in this war. What do you make of this argument? Well, it, it's absolutely true that the longer a war goes on, the harder it is to back out. But no war would ever end, you know, if that rationale held sway. And, you know, we can honor the sacrifices, the catastrophes, the victims uh, in no greater way than by achieving a lasting peace. And that's clearly the direction we have to go. Intergovernmental organizations such as the EU, G7 and even NATO regularly cite Russia violating international order and law and that diplomacy that takes into account territorial concessions will only incentivize as well as send false signals to other authoritative states that they can invade any country whenever they want without repercussions. And it is therefore essential that they face repercussions instead of resorting to diplomacy. How do you respond to this argument? We developed the rules of international law predominantly after the Second World War. Um, the US has been in the business of rejecting those rules. There has been no greater uh, aggressor worldwide than the United States. We've conducted um, uh, regime changes in about 68 different countries. We have interfered in the elections of over 80 countries, according to a database at uh, Carnegie Mellon University and a professor there named Dove Levin. Um, we, uh, we have, according to the Congressional Research Service, we have sent our military uh, to, um, into incursions over 250 times just in the last 30 years. So yes, we absolutely do need international law and the effort to substitute a rules-based order where the rules are not written down. The rules are just kind of called 
spontaneously by the United States, um, you know, this is laughable again. And um, that is the problem. We exemplify, the U.S. empire exemplifies exactly the problem that's being described here. And this is why we need an improved United Nations. We need an international law which is actually um, fair and consistent and not controlled by a handful of countries who happen to be the, um, you know, the, the power holders at the end of the Second World War. You know, in, on the Security Council, you have the permanent members and a few others who rotate in, but this is not acceptable. We need a more democratic uh, global order and as the United States and its allies begin to lose their stranglehold on world power, we ought to be thinking about what comes next and whether the torch will pass and power will pass to some uh, uh, body governed by laws. Are we going to be a world of uh, governed by the rule of law or by the law of the jungle? You know, it's going to be one or the other, and we're going to be in the target hairs of this next world order. So. We should be using the uh, influence that we still have to uh, support actual uh, international law and uh, reforms within the United Nations to enable that to happen. I want to talk about uh, the demonstration rage against war machine that happened in February. A similar demonstration happened here in Germany, organized by the leftist politician Sarah Wagenknecht, which was attended by estimates vary from 30 to 50,000 people. Uh, how was the falling out uh, reaction on the demonstration that took place? Uh, as far as I know, uh, a lot of people from left wing, right wing, libertarian, socialist, uh, uh, the Green Party, and all, a lot of people from different uh, backgrounds were involved. Could you? talk about um, how the political system reacted to this demonstration and uh, what sort of uh, problems that you guys were faced with? The political system and the media largely ignored it altogether. Uh, there was a follow-up demonstration of about the same size that was more the uh, lefty groups um, and a lot of grassroots groups, um, which uh, had a very similar agenda, except that there was also a very concerted agenda uh, in support of, of human needs and to stop the theft of our resources by the military industrial complex. And you know, it had a more of an anti-corporate theme to it uh, and more of a, um, uh, a climate uh, protection theme to it as well. And indeed, these problems really are very connected. They are joined at the hip, as Martin Luther King said. Um, uh, you know, he, he named that connection as the triple evil of militarism, racism, and uh, extreme materialism, of which the climate crisis is really one product. Uh, so it, it was taking place more in that theme, and so it tended to bring in more people uh, from the left and uh, low-income and oppressed groups. Um, they were both great demonstrations, in my view, and you know, and we should be organizing, in my view, uh, in every conceivable modality. I don't see them as detracting from one another, and it's very important that everybody become involved. The powers that be mostly just ignored it because I think they didn't have anything uh, to say in response. They continued to mostly censor and to shadow ban. 
uh, is what they continue to do. And media sources, for example, like Consortium News, um, the uh, the Gray Zone, I believe, they get these scarlet letters uh, from some of these uh, censorship groups, the so-called um, News Guard, which gives you a red letter uh, and then prevents you from being accessed in public libraries and perhaps in public uh, higher education institutions. I'm not sure about that, but you know, it's very destructive and exemplifies the authoritarianism that we claim to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, opposing uh, globally. We, the U.S., that is, claim to be opposing. Um, you know, we we badly need a freedom of the press in order to uh, be a democracy, in order to hold power accountable and fight this war. So I think that's where the fight is. It's against censorship. But I do think that um, uh, things are getting increasingly discussed, you know, and they try to suppress any discussion of the um, uh, Nord Stream pipeline and things like that that are very undermining of the uh, U.S., uh, mythology about the nature of this war. So, you know, the truth will have out. It is having out. I think conversations are growing. People are paying an unbearable price for this war, which costs us here in the U.S. The war machine itself takes up over 50% of our discretionary budget. And if you add in the war at home, that is our oppressive uh, prison system and um, uh, homeland security uh, and the likes, it's two thirds of our budget. Meanwhile, some 15 million people are losing their health care as the um, COVID emergency uh, health care access is curtailed. Um, millions of children have been forced back into poverty as the uh, temporary extension of the child uh, tax rebate uh, has been curtailed. Um, you know, millions of people are facing eviction. Things continue to grind down on the American public. I'm not sure how it is in Germany, but, um, uh, you know, just about one out of every two Americans is either in poverty or near poverty. And the kinds of social supports and safety nets that used to be there are no longer. And, um, you know, we are, uh, you know, crushing inequality is becoming more crushing by the day. People are not going to stand for it. Uh, there's a lot of organizing going on right now among uh, some of the breakaway labor unions that are not held hostage by the Democratic Party the way that they uh, have been traditionally here. So there's a lot happening. If you look at public opinion surveys right now, people are breaking away from the political establishment, which is uh, reviled along with corporate media. They are reviled if you look at public opinion surveys. So there is a rebellion here in full swing and um, it uh, rebellion against the military stranglehold on our survival and our well-being is a part of this rebellion. And it's only going to grow. There's no other direction for it to go. To another question regarding the demonstration, um, for example, in Germany, the peace movement um, is not uniting 
um, to go stop the uh, weapon shipments or escalation in the war in Ukraine. They're usually divided amongst the lines of cultural issues, whether it's abortion, transgender, etc., or on issues of economic ideology, socialism, uh, or capitalism. Uh, however, this demonstration that you took part in, uh, people from all sorts of uh, spectrums with different opinions took part. How do you view this? Uh, is the war in Ukraine so important that um, one should put aside um, the economic, ideological, uh, new liberalism, socialism, put that aside and cultural issues to fight for something bigger? Um, in my view, there's an even better outcome here, which, which is that, and not everybody on the on the left agrees with me, but in my own experience, when you actually have a chance to move away from the corporate framing, from the framing by mainstream media, many people uh, who've moved into like the Trump camp were. Um, really pissed off Obama voters who felt that they had been thrown under the bus after promises that, uh, you know, that that they would be lifted up, they were actually shoved down and that that was on top of, you know, longstanding promises from the Democratic Party who uh, led led the way under Clinton for the primacy of the banks for the uh, for the attacks on the safeguards against um, you know, uh, reckless, um, uh, predatory banking, uh, the offshoring of our jobs, the uh, free trade agreements and so on that, that really threw working people in this country under the bus. You know, a lot of people looked at Bill Clinton for that and then saw Barack Obama acting in those in, in that image. Those are the people who then, who then like rush to embrace a demagogue like Trump, who is then promising, oh, you know, I'm for the little guy, but not actually helping the little guy uh, at all. So, um, you know, this is, uh, I think this underscores that most people are not ideological. Most people are responding to their life circumstances. And uh, people get that uh, their survival, their welfare, their access to housing and jobs and health care and education is being crushed right now. And in my experience, when the right and left get together, um, we usually come out with a populist agenda, but they need to feel like they can trust um, they need to trust the structure. And right now, nobody trusts government. And so a lot of that sort of defaults to the far right. And, you know, I think this is a uh, this is a global trend where we see the far right really uh, rising up in the face of neoliberalism and how working people are being destroyed by um, neoliberal banking and economics and, and all the rest, which is why we need a truly progressive agenda. I don't see it so much as a matter of right left as a matter of corporate and and predatory versus actually um, you know populist in the sense of supporting uh, everyday people. So when we get together to have this conversation about the war, we can begin to build trust um, around a, 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 a broader agenda. And in the first election, um, presidential election that I ran in 2012, we were actually supported by many uh, in, in libertarians on the traditional right. And in fact, in a debate that was hosted by the libertarians, where there was a libertarian candidate and myself, I was voted the winner 
over the libertarian by the libertarians, which to me really underscores that people want to be uh, respected and engaged. And when you go there, uh, everything becomes possible. Dr. Jill Stein, activist and former presidential candidate for the Green Party USA, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Zane. Great talking as always. And thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. YouTube, which is owned by Google, can censor or shadow ban us at any time. So if you want to make sure that you receive our information in the future, be sure to join us on these alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. And if you're watching this video and also our past videos, please take into consideration that there's an entire team working behind the scenes from providing camera, light, audio, in the case of our German videos, translating, voiceover, correction. So if you want us to continue providing you with independent and non-profit news and analysis, be sure to donate via bank account, PayPal or Better Place. I'm your host, Sam Raza. See you guys next time.